wished I could go to the wild. The wild? Whoa! <laughs> I told you it was bad luck. The wild? Are you nuts? That is the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> it's unsanitary. The penguins are going, so why can't I? The penguins are psychotic. Come on. Just imagine going back to nature, back to your roots, clean air, wide open spaces. Well, I hear they have wide open spaces in Connecticut. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the wildest edition of Nick's Nonfiction Ever. I'm your host, comic Nick Munez. The onus of bonus is upon us. This is John Krakauer, his bestseller, Into the Wild. In April of 1992, a young man from a well-to-do family hitched hikes to Alaska and walked alone into the wilderness north of Mount McKinley. He'd given $25,000 in savings to charity, abandoned his car and most of his possessions, burned his cash, threw his wallet into a river, and invented this new life for himself. Four months later, his decomposed body was found by a moose hunter. How did Christopher Johnson McCandles come to die in this unforgettable story? If you're a reader, John Cracker is a household name we are going to have under the banner of heaven about the Mormons, Church of Latter-day Saints, Beaten Wives. We're going to do Into Thin Air, He Summited Mount Everest. This is Krakauer's breakthrough book. And just when you think it can't take another turn, this outdoorsman finds another big old bend in the river. There is character development he puts on his sigmund freud nose does a bunch of cocaine and then self-diagnoses the family of the victims the whole mccandles are going to get psychoanalyzed today because who just walks into the wild i'm the same age as this kid chris there are no babes out there in the woods there are other feral dudes you're gonna run into some with guns i don't know what this kid was chasing John Krakauer, he uh, went up to Alaska when he was a young man going through his own existential crisis. There are not a lot of ways to prove yourself as a man in the world today. <laughs> you could take a fourth part-time job or get another thriving career at the Amazon warehouse. You see what we're saying? The Native American boys were kicked out of the tribe for a month like a Cub Scout, the Eagle Scouts, and just told, hey, go make it work. You are out in the wild now. It will definitely add to the character development and Krakauer, he throws the plot line future past. He thinks he's Quentin Tarantino the way he writes these books, so I summarized it into eight chapters today. Let's go about the author. We'll do it quick. John Krakauer, we'll have him back again, born in 1954 in Massachusetts, moved around a lot, raised majority of his childhood, took place in Oregon, and then he went back to New Hampshire for college graduated in 1976, married four years later. Him and his lovely wife moved to Washington after he released this book, the bestseller, Into the Wild. And in that four-year period, 1976 to 80, is when he climbed the devil's thumb in Alaska. Sometimes you come across a book and it seems like the perfect conjecture of realities in your life i just moved up to boulder getting out of the city you know i'm on the trajectory of this crazy chris this is a perfect book i'm living in boulder i'm looking at there is a devil's thumb on the south ridge hiked green mountain mother nature is calling here's one for you you look outside you see 
the snow hit the mountains in this city before you know it's going to snow. And you got the meteorologist on TV. He gets it wrong 50% of the days. I can just air out my scrotum hair and I know which way it's blowing for getting snow that night. Some other of Krakauer's books include Iger Dreams. That was in 1992. He wrote Banner of Heaven into Thin Air, Where Men Win Glory. That was one from 2009 about an Army Ranger NFL player. 2015, Missoula, Rape and the Justice System in a College Town. (laughs) That's probably his most political book, but that Latter-day Saints one is going to raise some pitchforks if we have any ex-Mormon listeners. Right next to Utah, we got the runoff in the cities out here. Now you know about John Krakauer. He's going to become a regular author here on the show. I'm happy we're here for a bonus, no whip clip. I'm putting more effort into the February one. That one's going to be a riot. It's uh, We're going over some graphics. We're talking love languages. Into the Wild by John Krakauer, Chapter 1, The Stampede Trail. Outside of Fairbanks, Alaska, a truck driver stops for a hitchhiker who introduces himself as Alex. Alex is going to be the pseudonym for our, quotes, hero for the day, Christopher Johnson McCandles. I'm going to be using these names interchangeably. Alex was known to his family as an intelligent, idealistic young man who believed that life is best lived alone in nature. Krakauer writes cyclically, remember that thesis for the end of the book, and he adds a lot of irony too, so the details matter. This kid the truck driver found told him I'd been walking around the United States for the past two years. I'm not lost. I've been prepping myself for the Alaskan wilderness. You can call me Alexander Supertramp. Supertramp, his last name. And they just put this movie on Netflix too. So if you watched that, you know the definition of leather tramp and a supertramp all in good time. Jim Galleon is the name of the truck driver, and he was the last human soul to ever see Chris McCandles alive. And at first, Jim Galleon was thinking, this kid, he's not just another delusional visitor of the Alaskan frontier. He, for the entire two-hour ride, was talking about his hardcore survival skill sets, even though he didn't even bring an axe. And he made that a big thing to the people he met along his journey. I'm going into the wild. I'm not even going to bring a freaking way to chop my wood, bro. One time I was having a <laughs> bonfire, high school bonfire backyards, and me and my friends were like, we have this pallet that we can't break down. Let's just burn the corner off. Entire pallet catches on fire. Got to break down the wood. Lesson number one. He doesn't even have a compass. He doesn't have snowshoes. He's going into the Alaskan bush. This is nothing like anything we have in the lower 48. It's the most wild America gets. They say the quiet up there is a negative decibel. McCandles, he's been planning on hitting this stampede trail north of Mount McKinley. It's an unmarked route where some hunter trails intersect. And this guy's like, all right, I'll drive you off the beaten path if you want. Galleon drops him off in the April of 1992. And then the book fasts forward. Krakauer takes us in his time machine to September of 1992 when five strangers fortuitously converged on the abandoned bus that he was staying in on the trail. So he only lasted four months out there in the wild. The later chapters are going to detail his final minutes alive. But his note read, the death note SOS, shoot on sight. 
I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is capital. No joke. In the name of God, please save me. (laughs) I am out collecting berries close by and will return soon. Three hunters on ATVs pulled up, looked inside this bus where he had taken refuge. They smelt it before they came upon it, and they called in the state troopers to evacuate the body. You could look up modern pictures. They had a Chinook two-rotored helicopter have to airlift this bus because so many tourists were going up there to check out this thing. There were people living in the bus before him. It's just been these people that run away from civilization and make it out there, and this was like one of these outposts. These things exist. We've talked about stories on the show before. Pacific Northwest, there are these bands of nomadic hippies. Chris came across some of these in an upcoming chapter. It's ironic. They found him dead 67 pounds, completely frail. He donated that $25,000 his parents gave him, well-to-do family, to a hunger salvation for South Africa at the time. was going through apartheid. He died of hunger, didn't save any of the money for himself, burnt it. Gonna take us to chapter two, Rubber Tramp. Crack Hour takes us to the small town of Carthage, South Dakota. And this is two months after the discovery of Chris McCandle's corpse. Alexander Supertramp, the kid on this odyssey, he met Wayne Westerberger while he was on the road. Westerberger is the owner of this grain mill, and he's going. Alex is one odd young man, but for some reason he has a working attitude unlike a lot of the drifters that you're going to find out there. So Westberg is trying to reintegrate him a little bit. He picked up McCandles, who was hitchhiking in Montana in the fall of 1990. Intense, talkative, hungry young man. His initial plan all the way up there north was to go to the Saco Hot Springs, a place that he had heard about from these rubber tramps, which are people who traverse the country via car. You have a vehicle, so you're like one step above in this groveling society, the Dolomites. (laughs) Rich people are arguing over how big their yacht is. And then a leather tramp is someone who goes about by foot and hitchhikes. (laughs) It was a rainy day when Westerberger gave him shelter and McCandles stayed with him for three days and was like, I'm definitely going to come back here. You're telling me if I need work, you're going to see me one day. And it was only a few weeks later, McCandles showed up eager to learn how to drive one of these combines, the giant tractors. Westerberger was sitting with him and he just gets out of the tractor at one point. He's like, congrats, you're a combiner. You learn on the fly. They're just looking for competence at these places in the Netflix movie. He was played by Vince Vaughn, A-list cast we're talking about. This is a heart-wrenching story in North America. McCandles, he had grown up in Annandale, Virginia. This was a suburb of Washington, richest counties in America, suburbs of Washington, D.C. His dad worked for NASA. He was like an aerospace engineer that modified the petroleum so it was more efficient. He had a bunch of half-siblings, but one sister that he lived in the house with with his parents who he didn't get along with wonder why he walked into the woods this one sister was his confidant because he went dark with his parents for these two years after college before he went into the wilderness and that 24 grand they gave him it was to oxfam the charity where he donated fighting hunter hunger the hunter games come to you live now why would you want to be part of society you could raid the capital whenever you want Just start sharpening spears in the wilderness with me. We're turning 
the first flat iron into a bunker. <laughs> the next evidence of Christopher McCandles surfaced from Lake Mead in Nevada. This was after Krakauer talked to Westerberger. There's no cops on the case. They can't even protect the Capitol. John Krakauer is doing all the dirty work. A ranger with the National Park Service said that a kid that was uh, driving a yellow Dodson was found outside of our reserve. And obviously it was McCandle's car, the one that he insisted driving across the country. His parents tried to buy him a new one. They said the car was covered in mud, like he tried to hide it under a tarp. So maybe I'll come back one day. But then uh, in the movie, he burns it. Burns his cash, burns his social security card, his draft card, his license plate. I bet more people did this in like the Vietnam era where your government's telling you we're going to send you to go die in a jungle. At least go die in the woods of your forefather's land. So he started his journey there at Lake Mead, portrayed well in the movie. He's like camping, but there's people on jet skis going by. He's like, I need to be more remote than this. And so he starts Tom Sawyering down the Colorado River. He hatches a catches a ride up north with someone who is obviously unimportant and he is able to go all the way down the Colorado River into Mexico when it goes through Nevada after the Hoover Dam it starts going into these little irrigation canals and he just walks down it fishes during the day meets foreign people he's living to the extreme and this is like portrayed in the book as the peak of his journey his odyssey what's a hero They start you in the middle of a story and the guy has an epic flaw. Like, he always wanted more. He couldn't give it up. Mother Nature was his true siren. He got stuck in a violent storm in the Gulf of California. And they were like, this is why you need a permit. You have to... But the permit, they told him, was 24 years to get. 24 years to float down a river. (laughs) What are we talking about? He didn't even go down with a helmet, though. So nuanced opinions. He took the risk he probably should have died he survived when he tried to walk back over the border they were like you can't just be crossing the earth willy-nilly you know there are permits for this and he is like totally lost on the language of humanity it's gonna take us to chapter three nature's relapse he was down in the desert he hitches starts learning how to ride the rails but before he goes all in on that takes a decent stop in los angeles's Los Angeles is. There are multiple. He gets a uh, government ID. He stays in homeless shelters for a while. Like he's on the record as even getting a job at a McDonald's. He wrote in his little journals about uh, being a drifter on the edge of town and how nobody can ever see him again. It's like when people look into him, they know he's a different type of animal now. He's asking people for the time and they're like, you're a homeless person. He's like, I was just living with my parents 10 months ago. He's got the stench of the unemployables on him. McCandles doesn't last long there. He's back out leather tramping. And he writes to Jan and Bob Burris, who become his, like, hippie road parents. And he turns up at their campsite and they tell him, What? I thought you were getting a job. You're going back to the straight old edge. And he's like, No, even the people at McDonald's are too plastic. They told me I had to wear socks while working making fries. (laughs) McCandles, he goes with Jan and Bob to the slabs. This is like one of these wanderer cults. And you don't have to sign a social contract or give a third of your tax money to someone to join these cults. It's a free of entry. You can leave at any time. 
This is in the remnants of a demolished Navy air base. And they just like started to inhabit it, a community of drifters. They're making art out of stuff like Burning Man garbage art. And he falls in love with a little 15-year-old girl there, and he's the righteous one. He doesn't sleep with her, but even the parents, Jan and Bob, are like, this girl, she's older than most people you're going to meet in the city, you know? She has life experience out here. He sings a song with her. He plays piano for their whole community. Like, he could have made a life for himself here as well. Krakauer wrote, Alex ignored. He was reading fiction about all of his books. He took solace instead of his girl conventionally overlooked the fact that Jack London himself had spent just a single winter in the north and that he died by his hand on his California estate at the age of 40, fat and drunk, obese and pathetic. Jack London. Krakauer's calling him out. He's saying, Alex, you got some false idols. Chris McCandles, Mr. Supertramp, he was reading David Henry David Thoreau. That guy probably only spent a couple weeks in the wilderness. With history, he turned into the nature boy. He got the aura around him. But these guys are posers. Chris McCandles is the actual one who risked it all and went out there. And he didn't come back alive. That's how it always works. If you actually get to take the leap, you stare into the abyss. The abyss will stare back. So he start hitchhiking again. Mr. McCandles couldn't make a life for himself at the slabs. He ditches his parents, Jan and Bob. They um, had a son who walked out on them as well, so this was like double the pain for them. This whole book, the whole story is tugging at your heartstrings, and there isn't a happy ending. Talk about not happy endings. Ronald Franz was a retired army veteran who took a liking to McCandles. He was living on the outside of Sedona or one of these towns southwest, and this old fisherman just came up to him one day and was like, you don't look like you should be out here. You're well-spoken. What's going on? And Alex was like, I'm not destitute. I have a college education. I can make a living for myself. I choose to do this. And they're a very odd match, but they spend multiple months together. This is all borrowed time McCandles is on, and he's like, what is this? I could have, maybe I am an old man at heart. This guy offers to be his grandpa, because he has no family left. They got killed by a drunk driver, and Alex was still all gung-ho. He's like, you got to get back out there, man. (laughs) There's young women who want to see guys like you. He's 80 years old, and he's like, I found peace. I have a routine that'll function until I limp past the finish line. And Alex is like, no, man travel what you need is to broaden your horizons again and so they go away they start writing each other alex's hitchhiking rides riding the rails he gets beat up at a railway one time they like had his number on all these video cameras so he stops taking his chances there they sicked some dogs on him and while he's staying up in carthage again making money at westerberger's mill he gets a letter from franz who had a full relapse. <laughs> he got back into drinking because he took Alexander Supertramp's advice. He started going out on the town, taking younger women out or swinging with ladies at Palm Springs retirement. And he uh, got lost in the sauce again. Winds up dying. <laughs> People like Alex. He's like, I'm going to write my little poems. They want to have a ripple effect on the world. <laughs> His was... Uh, a sign to the wave the lowest point of the wave alex is creating out there (laughs) let's move to chapter four you get the title though nature's relapse poetic chapter four proud bastard march 
1992, Chris McCandles appeared back at Wayne Westerberger's Grain Elevator. He planned on staying for months until April 15th, where he would have enough money resources to buy gear for Alaska. And Westerberger got to see the most of Alex at that point. He described him as definitely was not what you would call mechanically minded. All of his co-workers were saying he lacked common sense and the ability to see the forest for the trees. He didn't know how to use a microwave oven. <laughs> this kid, he was intelligent, hardworking, resilient, but he didn't have any mechanical dexterity or common sense. He was all theory. He didn't know how to put anything into practice. Westerberger, he was musing on the uh, relationship with McCandles as like a father-son thing, but he was like, just write the book, man. You don't have to go up to Alaska. You think John Krakauer put his life on the line before writing his Enola Gay? What was the name of that really gay book? We're not reading that one. <laughs> you know, Chris McCandles, they made a good scene in the movie about it. He's like, but Wayne, you don't get it, man. You've been here your whole life. It's society. And he's like, society? This sick society? <laughs> the air, it's all around us. Society. Once you own your own gray mill, when you have invested enough into the system, it's hard to hedge your own bet and then say, you know what, this has been bullshit. <laughs> so they have some really good discussions today because they don't portray Walt with... um. Wayne Westerberger with a very high light. He's on the record saying that he thinks there's really aliens at Area 51, so they shit on him throughout the entire book. But he was almost was able to give Alex some sort of um, stability and pull him into a community. He was hooking up with the bartender in that small town. Yeah, cringeworthy scenes here, the way he's telling all these working men <laughs> just wander out into the woods. It's no big deal. Krakauer, again, saying, Leo Tolstoy, this guy didn't really go out into the wilderness. Jack London's a fraud. Oi, Jack London. This is when Krakauer starts putting on his therapist hat. And he said, uh, I published a lot of articles for Outside Magazine that got a lot of hate mail when I was a kid and talking about going down into the South American Andes. Similar situation Krakauer was in. He wrote this... Entering the wilderness purposefully ill-prepared and surviving a near-death experience does not make you a better human. It makes you damn lucky. Krakauer climbed Mount Everest with some of the most experienced outdoorsmen ever. And he's like, you're not proving yourself as a man just by going out there. You're just seeing if you could get lucky. It's like uh, the difference between ignorance and courage is being courageous is knowing that you're going into something frightening before... An ignorant fool who just walks into something ill-prepared. He had another good quote here. Although he was rash, McCandles wasn't incompetent. He wouldn't have lasted 113 days there if he were. And he wasn't a nutcase. He wasn't a sociopath. Sociopath. He wasn't an outcast. McCandles was something else. A pilgrim, perhaps. It's a great point. Krakauer being even with his analysis. The guy made it. A hundred days in the wilderness by himself. <clears throat> I'm sure he shed the fat off of his soul in that point. Some of the quotes from the end are very eerie. It seemed like he was close to the light. Author Krakauer quoted a letter by Everett Roos. This guy was an artistic resident of Utah in the early 1900s and was known to his community, was a staple 
and he went out into the wilderness. This guy changed his name. He wrote, The beauty of this country is becoming part of me. I feel more detached from life and somehow gentler. I have always been unsatisfied with life as most people live it. Always. I want to live intensely and richly. Roos changed his name to Lan and then he changed his identity again after that. He identified so strongly with Jules Verne, the science fiction writer, that he referred to himself as Captain Nemo. You ever read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Great one. He also did a journey to the center of the earth. <laughs> Illuminati confirmed. Jules Verne is a 33 degree Freemason. <laughs> Roos is just like McCandles. They're into different authors. But this Roos guy, he changed his name as well, was into all of his fictional characters and tried to envy these writers who turned to fiction. You know, you can't create the best nonfiction story ever. It doesn't exist. Every great joke or dinner cocktail party story is embellished to the point where it's good. Everett Roos, he was found dead in David's Gulch along the Colorado River in Utah. He inscribed Nemo, 1934, into the stone entrance of the ancient Ansazi Indian granary. So he did find this, like, cave that had trees inside of it where the bat guano was dripping down and fertilizing new flora. Like, he did stumble on center of the earth new world that he was looking for. That is nuts, man. It's the universe giving him his friggin' present before he died have you looked into in china they're finding caves that are really deep that have like entire weather systems inside of it it's a raining thundering lightning inside of caves there's crazy shit you could find out there Krakauer also talked about irish monks who left the island of ireland and went to pepos and inhabited it started dwellings of their own in the sixth century even these ansazi indians they had to break away from their civilization as well because the center got too powerful i joked about it before what's that movie by mel gibson apocalypto we return to the wilderness and start anew when the incans the gods start requiring sacrifices and chopping everyday man's heads off. You gotta start over. Maybe that's the spirit that made it to McCandles. Takes us to the second half of the book, Chapter 5, Leather Tramp. September of 1992, a headline in the Anchorage Daily News reads, A man, estimated to be in his late 20s or 30s, is found dead of starvation on the Stampede Trail. It was then picked up by the New York Times a couple months after he died and this is a national headline Jim Gallion, the truck driver who was the last person to see McCandles who we started the story with today identified uh, McCandles' body as the corpse and then Wayne Westerberger also chimed in he got um, arrested in this time as well McCandles, again with a negative impact on the world they start digging into Wayne Westerberger's story he robbed Fort Knox with Area 51 technology <laughs> Chris McCandles, his uh, oldest half-brother, was starting to be questioned by the police, and this gave Krakauer another flashback scene because McCandles has all of these half-brothers and sisters on his journey riding the rails. He stopped at his old hometown and found out that his dad had a double family. <laughs> he had, like, eight more siblings than he knew of, a third family as well, triple families. This guy should have been a Mormon. Fits into the crack hour universe. 
it's just like, oh, even the guy who pretended to be the holy dad who had no mistakes had his own skeletons in the closet. It probably aided McCandle's radicalization, sent him further into the wild. Krakauer interviewed some more of the family. Walter McCandles is the dad. As soon as he was recovered from the bus, Walter was eager to get in front of the cameras. He said, a kid with so much compassion could cause his parents so much pain. How? Making it about himself. <laughs> kid, how much existential despair do you have to be in to seriously turn your back on every light, every sound that man has made and walk back into manhunt caveman Neanderthalness? You have no creature comforts. You don't like Ben and Jerry's McCandles. There are no chicks in the wild. Okay, that's enough. It's insane, though, how all of the family members, you know, everybody makes it about himself. Chris McCandles, he had straight A's up until his last semester in college. He played the piano, like, very well with that chick. He was known for memorizing all of these authors' things. This kid was very smart. He was probably just overthinking everything too much. You wouldn't want to borrow Einstein's brain, you know what I'm saying? It's probably terrible. He's overthinking the vacuum in his lungs every time he has to breathe. I bet all you out there are breathing on manual right now. Chris McCandles had no autopilot setting. His dad's final quote for the chapter was, There was always a little wanderlust in the family, and it was early on clear that Chris had inherited it. This chapter... Asked more questions than it answered, but Krakauer is good at that. He dug into the family a little bit to not totally make Chris the entire demon of the story. There's no hero. He's maybe an anti-hero. You gotta read Krakauer books with a heavy dose of nuance and irony. Chapter 6, El Segundo Familia. More backstory. I think this was when, narratively, he came across the double family. Krakauer. If you're writing in the sixth dimension playing 5D chess in a 2D book, you're going to lose some of your readers here. And we're making good time here. Let me get some, uh, hear that? I don't think you could brew hazelnut iced coffee in the wilderness. Maybe you could just stab a spigot into a tree and then syrup comes out. I'm a big syrup guy. That's enough for me to denounce humanity. Embrace Monk. Chris once lost his way in the Mojave Desert. He nearly died of dehydration. His parents reprimanded him for this, and this was the summer he was going into college. So even when he was 18, he didn't go out with any friends and do this road trip. He drove down to the deserts, the Grand Canyon they said he went to. This kid was always inheriting the wanderlust, as his dad said. McCandles, he kept it hidden from his sister that they had that second family so she had even more empathy for him because she was like oh my brother had this burden on his shoulders that he didn't tell me the whole time and he was trying to protect me for that deed she kept all of his secrets from his parents he would check in with her time to time it's all these web of lies deception familial politics El Segundo Segundo California second family come on people his uh, sister, though, she went through compulsive eating, and uh, she, like, withdrew from her husband for a long time. So the death that he subjugated himself to had a big fallout as well. Not just the ripple while he was here, but after. Chapter 7, The Devil's Thumbprint. Get to hear a little more about John Krakauer. 
we'll summarize our about the authors for the future. He was a headstrong young man, very much like Chris McCandles. He didn't rule McCandles' death to suicide, just extreme self-hatred. You know, at what point are we using these medical definitions anymore? Was he depressed why he went to the woods? He's a fucking... He has human monkey DNA. It feels good to be in nature. At 23, for reasons not dissimilar to the reasons that McCandles went into the woods, Krakauer climbed the Devil's Thumb in Alaska. You have to look up pictures of it. It's like the biggest spire in North America. It's a mountain, but it just looks like... uh. El Capitan. It looks like one of those monuments in the south, like just a giant rock that overhangs nothing. He needed climbing equipment, ice shoes, all of those picks. Because at the top, you just look down. There is no steady incline. <laughs> this is you're climbing upside down. Crack hour, this black diamond guy. He reached Alaska on a fishing boat. He met a woman up there who put him up for nights before he scaled the beast. I'll have pictures on the YouTube as well third day of his expedition there were high winds up on the glacier stinging sheets of snow reduced visibility dangerous mishaps he almost fell into a crevasse and i'm not going too deep into this because this is sounding like into thin air his book about mount everest that one is going to be a fun story (laughs) the mountain is alive baby mother nature here what was that the breath of the wild Call of the Wild, isn't that some sort of Henry David Thoreau book? Sherman Candles had his hand on that. Krakauer said it was around the fifth day he had a blunt rolled up that he decided to torch to celebrate. He's like, what if I don't make it to the top because of weather? I'm not going to be able to enjoy this thing. He's natic. He can't decide when to burn through the rest of his stash. (laughs) How do you think this guy writes books? Point there, he drops some of the ashes through the... uh, base of his tent the one that his dad gave him as an outdoorsman so he starts freezing to death up on the devil's thumb he makes it eventually story isn't about him he dangles 30,000 feet 30,000 3,700 feet like a turd he's just dangling up there in the wind looking over Mount McKinley he wrote the sour taste of panic rose in my throat my eyesight blurred i began to hyperventilate my calves started to shake stiff with fear i started working my way back down the climb was over the only place to go was down so crack hour even acknowledged that at some point during your journey you have to start the falling action <laughs> you know we're in act three of the book now you gotta admit when the journey's over he started going on bigger hikes to uh, re-emit this feeling. You know, he was saying the sour panic, like pure adrenaline. You are stimulated to the max that you can as a human. Your flight or fight is on. You've got the cortisol in your veins and not a lot of ways to prove yourself as a man here. So Krakauer knows this kid with an appetite that Chris McCandles had everybody's got to push themselves. He just wishes that McCandles climbed a mountain where other people were also bouldering. Underlying theme here, you know, all these guys had broken relationships with their fathers and they're trying to patch it with Mother Nature. Insight is still the best thing that you can instill on your kids rather than a rigid set of beliefs that you carry down as tradition. We got Noam Chomsky's propaganda in the public mind to come up and he says, make your kids question things. Tied in. Chapter 8, last chapter into the wild. (laughs) 
right before the disappearance of Christopher McCandles, there was a pause in his odyssey to visit the Laird River Hot Springs. And this is right on the threshold of the Yukon Territory up in Alaska. Hot Springs. <laughs> you know, when you go to like a national park, there's a sign that says, This is your lands. Sponsored by Colgate. They turn all of these hot springs into like five-star spas where you have to take a two-day retreat. <laughs> he found some hot springs up in Alaska. He said that was one of the best parts of his journey. Could have been the peak of his mountain before he took it a step too far. April 25th, this guy named Gaylord Stuckey, legendary, he bought a bag of rice for Chris McCandles and then drove him to the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Chris starts beefing up on his edible plant knowledge in the library. Omnivorous future to come. Stucky pointed out that, Alex, you're too early. You know, there's still two feet of snow out there, and you don't have snowshoes. <laughs> the guy that dropped him off before the trucker we started with gave him a pair of rubber boots waders because he wouldn't have, his feet would have frozen off before the 115th day. McCandles spent a few more nights at Fairbanks, mostly at the university, not meeting women. This was his last chance to get a whiff of the pood. <laughs> He's writing uh, postcards to Wayne Westerberger, Jane, and Bob Burris. He buys a used gun, and the guys at the gun store were like, so what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going out there. I'm roughing it. 100 days, nothing but myself. Can I get a 22 caliber? And the guys just stare at him. What are you going to be shooting, moles and hummingbirds? Uh, 22, gun humor. Not a very big caliber. You need some sort of, you know, 5.56. Five, you got to sling lead at these friggin'... Yukon bears. You have moose up there. <laughs> He's taking a little 22. He leaves the university campus, pitches his tent on frozen ground not far away. And then this is when Jim Galleon, that first truck driver, picked him up. And then we resume our story from chapter one. He's trampling through the bush. He finds his magic bus. He writes it into his journal as... And he goes for a month of shooting <laughs> squirrels, porcupines grooses little like grubs he's eating berries but he's still expending more calories than he's taking in with all the firewood collecting you need a big game hunt at some point you know humans don't survive alone you need the group of hunters who are able to perspire and can chase down a deer for 20 miles and then they take that back to the oh the drum circle that night and you have a giant festival because you just caught enough food for a month this becomes a thing we don't have to drag it out he winds up shooting a moose later on and he kills it he must have shot it through the eye he doesn't preserve the meat correctly and one of the guys at Westerberger's grain mill he spent months writing down the tips you got to shred the meat cut off the head immediately if the flies land on your meat immediately they're going to start shitting out maggots get it infected he didn't drag it home quick enough, and he only <laughs> had, like, one steak off of this entire moose. And this ate away at him completely. He noted it in his journal. He's, like, too soft to do this. Man, when I was 12, I was playing with my buddy's BB gun, and we were just sitting on his deck shooting around, and I shot a bird. It was probably 40 yards up in a tree. And this bastard was just sitting there taunting me with its beautiful music. And so I lined up metal BBs, pumped the gun still, shot it, looked like it went through the heart. You heard a, like a big slap, feathers, 
and then it just opened its wings. It didn't have the energy to flap, and it just hang glided, soared down, skipped off the water. And me and my buddy were like, yo, you killed it. And I was just hyperventilating, sitting there holding the rifle. And I was like, let's go check it out. And we ran down there and I've never felt worse. This bird of tear was running down its beak. I connected with its eternal soul. It's a part of me now. Seriously, you have to be like the, uh, you need the hunters in your society. You need those savages who are willing to put torture execution chamber on people those are the guys who feel no remorse when they kill this moose for no reason obviously you got to eat in the wild chris was not made for this he was raised to create petrol like his father and so all the meat spoils he starts um panicking at this point he's like digging more notches in his belt loop as he gets skinnier that guy that he got to relapse, he taught him how to work leather, which is coming in handy for him, even though he left him at the bottom of a bottle. Crack hour fast forwards to one year later, him and his buddies are hiking on the Telnacken River, and they were going a mile upstream. There is a geoservation site where they're like gauging the land. A guy comes by it every week to check on the meters. He could have just posted up there for a little bit a mile south there was a hunter trail where it intersected he really wasn't in the wild mccandles didn't go as far as he thought he would he went into himself as far as he could have he did all of his poems and he has these carvings around the bus when crack hours men come across the bus a year later at this scene they're like yo it smells here was he pooping where he was sleeping look at this mattress look how pathetic this is and we got endurance coming up in a couple weeks. This is about the original trans-Arctic journey. These guys walked across the South Pole, and they visit their site where they had to post up for a year. And they're like, we were Cretans. We were subhuman at this point. And so all of the guys are laughing at young McCandles, all of Crack Hour's friends, the fucking sock forward operators. They're like, we always have our thermal military-engineered sleeping bags. And Krakauer is like, yeah, what a pussy. But again, Krakauer to himself in one of these situations is going, I feel for this kid. And this is a pretty damn good setup compared to what I had on the devil's thumb where I should have died. So Krakauer, he's um, at odds with himself again. Is McCandles a poser who is just into all of this theoretical application? Let's write about the beauty of nature but not actually rough it like Teddy Roosevelt really good writing here i would suggest this book he starts going over the final quotes he carved into the bus happiness only real when shared a striking sentiment from the beginning the kid who relentlessly was talking about solitude and nature being the only escape on july 30th mccandles made an ominous entry into his journal Extremely weak, fault of potato seed, much trouble trying to stand up, starving, great jeopardy. And this sparked the entire debate, how did this kid actually die? He was 67 pounds, he was too weak to have even made it a mile north to some geostation. The argument becomes, was it a potato or was it a fungus growing on the potato seed? This wasn't too uh, entertaining, I guess... Um Let's try to draw some English teacher irony. He spent all that time on Westerberger's potato seed farm and he couldn't tell the difference. Like he didn't pay attention to the guy who told him how to preserve the meat. He donated his food to starvation. 
If you're not lost in the 12 layers of irony already, it doesn't get any better. Krakauer says it wasn't the seeds of the wild potato, it was the fungus. We'll go with him, the outdoorsman. He said the body is prevented from turning what it eats into a source of usable energy if you ingest too much, if you are bound to starve no matter how much food you put into your stomach. So it was like a tapeworm he had in his stomach to end it. He could have never satiated his hunger pangs. Damn. August the 5th, Christopher McCandles is found dead. His note reads, in weakest condition of life, death looms as serious threat. The old hunters come across and we end where we start. Not sure how you have a crescendo when you write a book like that. The final message from Christopher McCandles. Alexander Supertramp, I have had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and may God bless all. That is Into the Wild, our first ever John Crack Hour and a timely read. Thank you guys for staying tuned for another edition. I'm more excited about next week. I'm happy we got to sneak in a bonus edition. The onus of bonus. Starting the year off right. 52 goddamn books. Make sure you guys are subscribed to the Patreon page because next month I'm going to be behind the camera. You are going to see this chiseled, douchey mug. And next week... Oh boy, am I excited about this one. This is one of my favorite novels. We are going fiction to end the first month of the new year. Fyodor Dostoevsky, my boy, making a reappearance with Crime and Punishment. This was a big release last year, The Underground Man. This is uh, almost as psychological as we will get. We're not talking about running away from your problems into the woods. Raskolnikov Romodin Romanovich kills his problems this is the story of a young man who is left broken with nowhere to turn from his government and his police system he decides to kill the town pawnbroker it liberates everybody from their debt but he is left to stew in the guilt he has a conscience we are going to see how a rational man deals with murder on his mind next week it's a fucking classic, people. I got a curse to emphasize how much of this book. It's like quoted in the New York Times as one of the most essential books to read from the past 300 years. I loved it. Don't read it. No reading required here on Nick's Nonfiction. Next week, Crime and Punishment. Thank you guys again for sharing Into the Wild. It's a really short book, too, so I read it. I was like, let's put it out. Hope you guys liked it. Drop what you think in the comments if you're living in a tent on the Colorado River. Would love to hear about it. I'm your host, Nick Muniz. Love you guys. See you next week. Peace.